Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you with us as well. And we want to welcome in Prescott Valley today. If you're worshiping there in PV, we are so grateful to have you a part of the Quad City family. Uh, before we dive into our message today, I do want to make one quick announcement about what's coming next. So starting next week, we're going to be kicking off a brand new sermon series that we're calling Romans, the Gospel for Everyone. And so we're really excited about this. If you've been around Quad City for very long, you know one of the things that we do is we'll just take a book of the Bible and work through it line by line, verse by verse. And that's what we're going to try to do through the book of Romans. So we're going to be in there a little while. So if that's your cup of tea, then you're going to love this. So we're, we're kicking that off next week. We'll have some booklets that will go with it with uh, some life group material, things to do with your family, uh, some extra study aids to go along with this series, because there's a lot in the book of Romans, more than we're able to cover in 30 minutes on a Sunday. And so it's, we're going to be in it a while, but we're going to be doing some stuff around it as well. Uh, one of those being we're going to start our own podcast just for this series. So if you are a podcast person, then I would encourage you right now, grab your phone, wherever you get your podcast. This one is available. All you got to do is search the gospel for everyone and just look for the Quad City logo. And so pull that up on your podcast. We're going to download the first one this week. So if you just... Uh, subscribe to this podcast, uh, then it will fire up over the next however many weeks we're going to be in Romans. So uh, look forward to kicking that off next week, and hopefully you will be here with us. But today we're kicking off or finishing up this series that we're calling Off the Flannel Graph. And we're looking at some of these stories that many of us learned as children, and they became for us children's stories. And so we're trying to take them out of the genre of children's stories and be reminded that these stories that we have, they're scripture to us. They are God's word for us, even as adults today. And we're going to look at a story that probably is the most famous of all the stories, that people in our culture reference this story probably more than any other Old Testament story. One great example is from the the, the 
movie Hoosier. So if you're a sports fan, this is one of the greatest sports movies of all time. It's about a high school basketball team in Indiana. You may remember this scene. Preacher Pearl gathers the boys of Milan High School into the locker room before the big game, the final game against the perennial power from South Bend Central. And he pulls the boys together and he says these words. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the head and he fell to the ground. Amen. And that was the pep talk. That was it. That was the whole thing before they went out. And everybody understood exactly what he was talking about. It's the story of David and Goliath. And it was... This Milan school was the smallest to ever win the the state championship in Indiana. They go out and they play David to South Bend's Goliath. If you're a sports fan, you've probably heard that metaphor used. Like if you ever watch March Madness in the NCAA tournament, there's always a reference. Somebody will always make this comparison. When some 16 seed is playing the number one seed, oh, it's David versus Goliath because it looks from the outside like the big team is always going to win, but they never do. In the story, David always wins. I don't understand it. But, <clears throat> but, that, but they, they use this story as a way to say, don't give up hope. Don't ever give up hope. You can fight. There's always a way. It looks like it's impossible, but a miracle you can win. David always triumphs over Goliath in this story. People who've never darkened the doors of a church have heard the story of David Goliath. It's become cliche as a way to encourage people that no matter the odds, just have faith. And you will have victory over the giants in your life. But is that really what this story is trying to teach us? That's what I want to talk about today. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on or turn them to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's where we're going to begin today. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17. We have a lot of David's life recorded for us in the Old Testament. No story of David is longer than this story. Like this one sets the scene for David's life. It speaks of its significance. The author wants us to know about this story. There's more detail given here than any other part of David's story. And the author sets the scene like this. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other with the valley between them. I've got to be honest, I've practiced these names because it always feels like I'm cussing as I'm going through those. <laughs> but one of the things I always like to point out is that when you, when you read these stories, there's lots of detail. There's a lot of geography here because this isn't, didn't happen in a land far, far away. These are real places that you can go look at today. In fact, a few years ago, I've got to take a couple of trips to Israel. This is one of the places that we stop, is at the Valley of Elah. You can stand on top of a hill and look out across the valley. You can see where this takes place. 
And I want you to notice that this valley of Allah, it is not like some steep kind of wooded ravine. No, no, no. It's big, giant, sloping hills. So imagine that you got the Philistines on one mountain, the Israelites on the other. And as you can notice, there is this brook, this drainage that runs right down the middle of it. That people still go and pick rocks out of, just like David. So imagine this scene. I've got the Israelites on one side of the hill. Philistines on the other. There's thousands of tents set up. There's all of these soldiers standing there with their swords and shields and javelins and it's sparkling in the sun. It would have been quite a menacing sight to have walked down into the middle of this valley. You can almost feel the restless tension in the air as each side starts their battle lines waiting for the other side to make the first move. A champion named Goliath, who is from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor, bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear Shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. Of all of the components, the author goes into the greatest detail just to help us get a picture of Goliath in our mind. I thought about doing a cutout painting of Goliath to show you the scale, but there's no way to do it without it seeming cartoonish. And that's the problem with these stories, is I don't want it to be a cartoon to you. He gives us great details. He begins by telling us that Goliath was six cubits and a span tall. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, a cubit was the distance between the bottom of your elbow and the top of your middle finger. That's one cubit. He's six cubits and a span. A span is about the average distance between the end of your pinky and the end of a thumb. So... A cubit is roughly 18 inches. A span is roughly 9 inches. You do the math, and Goliath is somewhere around 9 feet 9 inches tall. He's a behemoth of a man. And he goes into great detail telling us about his armor. He's got a bronze helmet on. He's got this coat of armor that we're told weighs 5,000 shekels. It's roughly 125 pounds to cover up his massive body, just in his scale armor. The bronze protectors over his legs, a bronze javelin over his back, the spear of his, the, the head of his spear, we're told, is 600 shekels, which is roughly 16 pounds. So go home today and tie two gallons of milk to it, the end of a stick. That was his that was his spear. I mean, this is, this is massive. And out in front of him walks a shield bearer. Shield bearer, this, this shield is the, the Hebrew word describes the largest one used in battle. It was the size of a full-grown man walking out in front of him. So again, just, just pause for a minute and imagine that sight. This giant walking out of the Philistine camp, he's, he's 
seemingly impenetrable. His weapons are enormous. And he walks out into that valley across from the Israelites and he begins taunting them. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle as if you're going to actually do something? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? So choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, then we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Goliath proposes a tactic called representative warfare. You send out your best, we'll send out our best, and they will fight to the death. And whichever one of them wins, their army will surrender. There's no need for everybody to get out here today and get hurt and bloodied and die. We don't have to do that. You send out your best. We'll send out our best. Whichever one wins, wins the war. Goliath is called a champion because he's done this before. This is how they win their battles. Again, imagine... You're an Israelite, and you see this guy, and you hear him screaming this. I think this verse here is probably an understatement, dismayed and terrified. Yeah, they were, they were scared to death. Saul and the Israelites are scared to death. They didn't want to challenge him. And verse 17 tells us that he goes out every day for 40 days and screams this out. Forty days straight, this giant goes out taunting and laughing and cursing and shouting his usual defiance to the Israelites. And every time this giant rears his ugly head toward the Israelites, they all run scared. Their terror just intensifies. Meanwhile, back at the house, David was a son of an Ephraimite named Jesse, who was from the Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse was very old. Three oldest sons of Jesse followed Saul to the war. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So, this is not the first time we meet David. It is the first time he's introduced into this story. We already met David because Samuel went to Jesse's house and anointed one of Jesse's sons as king. He was looking for the next king. And all the sons were brought in, save David. And they went down the row. He's not the one. He's not the one. He's not the one. Don't you have any left? Yeah, yeah, I got the little shepherd boy out there. Yeah, bring him in. Oh, he's the one. So David has already been proclaimed king. He's already been anointed king. It's just nobody knows it yet. Because David's a young man. We don't know how young. We do know that the military age was 20. So David's oldest three brothers are off to war. They're all over 20. David is not. So think maybe 16, 15, 17. He's still a teenager. 
He's got a job. He works with Saul. Sometimes he would play the harp and soothe Saul as king. So he's going back and forth from, from working with Saul the king to being a shepherd for his elderly father's sheep. So he goes back and forth, back and forth from the battle lines with Saul to the, to the fields with the sheep for his father. And Jesse comes to David one day and says, Hey, David, I want you to go check on your brothers. They're, uh, they're, they're at the battlefront. I haven't heard anything for them, from them for a while. Go and figure out how they're doing and bring me word back. And so, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd. He loaded up and he set out as Jesse had directed him. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left the things with the keeper of the, the supplies. And he ran to the battle lines and he asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, he stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. And when, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled in great fear. So dad says, hey, go check on your brothers and take some supplies. So David gathers up all the stuff and he heads out. Finds the battlefront. He drops the supplies with the guy, whoever it is, his job to take care of supplies, and runs straight to the front of the line. And he finds his brothers to ask them how they were doing. And while he's standing there talking with his brothers, Goliath comes out. And he starts yelling his defiance in the face of the Israelites. They're Imagine David cresting that hill into the valley of Elah and seeing these shimmering shields and the battle lines drawn. I mean, this would have been an amazing sight. He walks into the middle of it. He hears Goliath. He, he's, Dave, uh, Goliath is shouting his usual defiance, and David hears it. But David isn't the only one that hears it. Everybody hears it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. They all take off. They're scared to death. Now, the Israelites have been saying, so they're all standing in the front lines and, and they're talking about this Goliath. Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him a daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Now David asked the man standing near him, wait, wait, wait. what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So again, Goliath comes out. He says, send somebody. Let me fight somebody. Give me your best. Now the best should have been, would have been Saul. You remember Saul, when he became king of Israel, was picked because he was head and shoulders bigger than everybody else. He was the giant in Israel, but he doesn't want anything to do with it. And so instead of going out to fight himself, Saul says, I'll pay somebody. That's what I'll do. And he promised great wealth. I'll make you rich if you go fight this guy. I will pay you off. In fact, I'll even do better. I'll throw in a daughter. Like, you can... I'll give you a wife. You want to go do that? I'll give you a wife. And 
You're marrying into the royal family. I mean, this comes with some power and some prestige. I'll make you wealthy. I'll give you some power. You'll be part of the family. You can come to Thanksgiving. And to top it all off, no taxes. Like, your whole family free from taxes for the rest of your life. Like, this is a good deal. And David hears them saying this. Like, we always want to give David great motives. But he's listening to them say this. And he goes, wait, wait, what? What? Money? Women? Power? I'm in. Let's do this thing. Where do I sign up? So, so David says, I'll go find him. Saul gets word of this, calls him in. And David says to Saul, let, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. Well, Saul replied, well, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. <laughs> I'm a shepherd. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, and I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David says, I may not have experience in fighting giants, but I know what it is to be in a battle of the death. And I fought the lion and I have fought the bear and God has saved me in those moments and he will do it again. David walks in with a unimaginable faith. Why? Because he believes in the living God. He believes his God is alive. Like he is still active, still moving, still working, still powerful. He believes in a living God. Which I read that and I think, do I believe in a living God? Like, do you believe today that your God is alive? Like he's active and moving. That your God is 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 moving in the lives of his people. I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of forgetting our God is alive. And we treat our faith as if it is a story to be believed, not a savior to be followed. It's not just a story to believe, it's a savior to follow. He is alive. David believes his God is alive and active and will empower him. In this battle, David shares this information with Saul, and Saul doesn't quite know exactly how to respond, and he just gives him kind of this Hail Mary kind of blessing, go and the Lord be with you. I don't know. I got nothing. I don't, what are we going to do? You may remember the rest of the story. Saul tries to outfit David with his armor give him the best man-made weapons that the Israelites have, which were Saul's weapons, his sword, his shield, his armor. David tries to put it on, and it just doesn't fit. It's not what he's used to, and so he just takes it off. And he says, I'm going to go to battle just like I do every day when I walk out into the field with the sheep. 
And he grabs his staff and he grabs his sling. And he famously walks down to the brook and he picks up five smooth stones. Now, when you think about him going out with a slingshot, don't think about that little pea shooter that you used to use on your brother. It looks something like this. The length of it is about, this, about your wingspan. Got a, got a little loop on one end you put your finger through. Got a little knot on the other end. Put that between your finger and your thumb. When you think about the, the stone that you're putting in here, again, it's not like a little piece of gravel. Think about a stone somewhere between the size of a golf ball and a billiard ball. You stick that in there and you just start winging this thing around. You can go on YouTube today and actually watch people shoot the shepherd's sling. Like they still utilize this thing. This is what David would have done. So he goes down and he grabs his stones. And you may remember how the rest of the story goes, but I want us to read it today. He says, meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, he kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And Goliath despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you're coming out here with a stick, with sticks, coming at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, and I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his uh, sank into his forehead. He then fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran, and he stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it out from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and they ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath, to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherahim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Again, this is probably part of the story that you know. David killed him with a stone and cuts off his head. The rest of the army then, seeing that Goliath is down, they join in the victory. 
As the Philistines are running in defeat, the Israelites chase them down and kill them one by one. But the victory was already over. Again, you know this story. So, what, what's the point for us? What's the point for us as adults in 21st century Prescott, America? What's in it for us? Is the point that God is bigger than your giants and that you should go through life knowing that God is with you like he was with David and will help you to slay your giants? Sure. We can say that. That's true. That's true. We can all look at David and be inspired by his faith and know that the same God who was with David is still with us. Sure, that's true. And that's usually the message that we hear from this text. That's the message I have preached from this text. But I don't think that it is the biggest takeaway from this text anymore. That even though that's how this gets preached, I think I don't think that's why we have this story. And the reason I say that is because I don't know if anybody's told you or not. This may be shocking to a few of you, but hang with me for just a moment. When it comes to the Bible, you're not the point. I don't know if anybody's told you that. You're not the point. And whenever, whenever we read these stories, we have a tendency to put ourselves in the middle of the story as if we're the heroes, like we're the David in the story. You're not the hero. You're not David. We learned this a couple years ago when we were talking about the life of Joseph. Like in the story of Joseph, you ain't Joseph. You're not the one who got thrown into the pit and sold into slavery. No, no, no. You were the brother who tried to get your brother killed. Like your decisions got your brother Jesus murdered. That's who you are in that story. When we look at these great stories of the Old Testament, before we ever see ourselves, we need to first see Jesus. Like standing on, on this side of the cross, when we look back, everything that we see, we look through the, through the view of the cross. We look through Jesus. All of these stories are pointing us to Jesus. David is not a foreshadowing of Jason. David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's showing us Jesus. Jesus was the son from Bethlehem. Jesus was the greater David the son from Bethlehem. Jesus was the one who was anointed and appointed king before anybody realized he was king before he was revealed. Jesus is the better shepherd than David who laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the better obedient son who left his father on his father's direction to supply and ultimately save his brothers from war. Jesus is the one who is willing to walk into the battle alone and fight the greatest enemy that exists, sin and death itself. 
Jesus is the one who is armed not with the weapons of man, but by faith in the power of the living God. Jesus is the one who put to death both sin and death. And when he did, all of those that he fought on behalf of, they got to join in the war for the mop-up duty to secure the victory. Jesus is the greater king, the root of the son of Jesse who sits on the throne of David forever. You aren't David. Jesus is. And he secures our victory. Again, if you want to see yourself in the story, you're one of the Israelites standing on the, on the, on the hill behind, scared to death every time Goliath comes up and shows his ugly face because you know you can't win. That's who we are. This story is a foreshadowing of the shepherd king to come who fights on our behalf, the representative of our army, and who walks away victorious, and we get to join in the battle once the victory is secure. That's who we are. Let me end with this. There's a part of the end of the story that my guess is never again made it onto your flannel graph. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. So he cuts his head off, and then he picks it up. And he throws it on his back, and he takes it to Jerusalem. Like, this is an odd detail, right? Why in the world would David do that? Just so you know, get your geography the Valley of Elah is about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. He's walking this giant skull 20 miles across the desert to the city of Jerusalem. Now again, what's interesting is Jerusalem is not an Israelite city at this point. It would not become an Israelite city for another two decades when David becomes king and conquers the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. 20 years before it's an Israelite city. So why is he going to Jerusalem? Doesn't even make sense. It's not even one of their cities. But David goes to Jerusalem with the head of Goliath. And we don't know why he goes to Jerusalem with the head of Goliath. There's no temple there. Solomon, David's son, would build the temple 40 years later. There's nothing there spiritual for the Israelites. So why Jerusalem? We don't have a good answer. We have some guesses, though. The one I find most intriguing is, again, pointing to the fact that David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. David marched this nasty, rotting, stinking, maggot-filled skull across the desert for 20 miles. And where did he take it? To Jerusalem. Now, he didn't go in Jerusalem. He wouldn't have been let in the city with a giant, rotting skull. So likely he stands outside the city on a hill, probably. No one would let him take it into the city. Likely he's putting this thing on display so that the, the people of God in and around Jerusalem would be encouraged that, that Israel was victorious in this battle against their enemies. And the enemies of the people of God would see this big, giant, rotting skull on display reminding them that the God of Israel is victorious for his people. 
So where would you put it? Probably near a road, maybe on a hill. You want everybody to see it. Could it be that it was displayed on the very same hill that Jesus died on? A hill we call Golgotha? Some point to the fact that this could be named this hill after Goliath of Gath. The word Golgotha means place of the skull. Maybe it was named after Goliath's giant skull. And it was put there as a picture of the victory of God over the enemies of God, as a foreshadowing of Jesus who would one day be hanging on that hill himself where he defeated the greatest enemy, death and sin, and Satan himself. It is a reminder to us that we ain't David, that Jesus is David. And he is the champion of all. Again, this is all conjecture. We don't know exactly why he went to Jerusalem. But when we hear this story, it shouldn't make you think about you. It should make you think about your Savior. Who won the battle on your behalf. And now you get to join in the mop-up victory. That he's already secured. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you represented us in the defeat against death and sin so that we can live victoriously now, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done in and through us. May, may our worship of you intensify today as we see a picture of the servant King David foreshadowing the servant, King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.